We have struggles of self-serving attitudes. We have uh, struggles of self-accomplishment, thinking that what we do in our own power and our own strength makes us righteous. Or maybe that what we do in our own control and own strength maybe is uh, puffing us up in pride like we're so smart, or even in extreme cases of prosperity gospel, thinking that uh, what we do in the, uh, the fruit of our labor is actually showing that, uh, that God is blessing us uh, more than he's blessing others. The first century church struggled with this, and the writer of Hebrews addresses this, showing how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and how Jesus is our true king and priest, our true righteousness and peace. Chapter 7 begins um, as uh, a continuation of the previous couple chapters, showing how Jesus is our superior priest and is better than anyone or anything. And chapter 7 begins by saying, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we're introduced to this character, a guy named Melchizedek. We know very little about him. He's written about in Genesis and recounted in the Psalms and a couple areas. Melchizedek is a priest and a king. His name means king of righteousness, and he is a king of Salem, which means peace. So he is a king of righteousness, a king of peace. He is a king and he is a priest. And this tells us a great deal about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews uses this story of Abraham and Melchizedek to teach us about Jesus and teach us something about ourselves, showing that Jesus, our true king and true priest, our true righteousness and our true peace, changes everything for us. And this is good news. So I want us to look at those four facets that describe Melchizedek and see how this a somewhat uh, obscure character from the Old Testament is foreshadowing who Jesus is and what he does for us. <clears throat> First, we see that he is a king. Verses 1 and 2 say this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth a part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. (coughs) You see, Melchizedek was a king. And if you recount the story in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, you see what had happened. There's a guy named Abraham. Uh, Abraham was a patriarch. He was uh, one of God's chosen people out of whom uh, God was going to bless all the nations of the earth. He was uh, the multiple great, 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 great grandfather of uh, the Hebrew nation. He was a great, 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 great grandfather of uh, Jesus. And we looked at last week how God made uh, promises to Abraham, a promise to bless Abraham. And that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we see ultimately the fulfillment of that promise is found in Jesus because Jesus is from the lineage of Abraham and Jesus is the ultimate blessing to God's people. That is God's ultimate grace to you and I. And so we see that Melchizedek uh, meets Abraham. And it's an interesting story because Abraham had a a relative who uh, was captured by some kings. And Abraham gathers 318 guys to go rescue his relative. And in the process, slaughters some kings, takes some possessions from them, and is traveling back. Now here's a man who was called out by God, 
A man that God said, you are going to be my guy. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nations of the earth through you. Ultimately, the Messiah, Jesus, will come through your lineage. And I want to lead you to a place, a land that I will show you. Right? This is God speaking to Abraham. And in this story, Abraham goes all like ninja, like gladiator. Like grabs some guys and says, look, my my nephew got captured. We're going to go get him. So he and 318 guys go to rescue his nephew in the process, slaughter some kings, take some stuff from them. It's pretty like wicked and pretty violent. The Bible's pretty violent, y'all. Not, condone, not condoning violence. This is just a story that's in the Bible. But, right. It's God's word, though. It teaches us something. We're getting to what it teaches us. Just hang in there. 23 more minutes. Here we go. In the process, Abraham rescues his kinsmen, conquers some kings, takes the spoils of this battle, and as he's traveling back, he meets a man named Melchizedek, who was a priest, who was a king. He is king of Salem, that is peace. He is a king of righteousness. That's what his name means. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. And it's so interesting to me that in their interchange, they meet, and Abraham, his, his interaction with Melchizedek teaches us a great deal. Look what happens. I mean, Abraham was... Blessed by God, he was the recipient of God's promises to be blessed and to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I mean, he he spoke with God. God spoke to him directly, just spoke to him. And then he goes and conquers all these kings and gets all their treasure. And as he's going back, he meets Melchizedek and gives him a tenth of his spoils. And Melchizedek blesses him. Think about that. I mean, how easy would it have been for Abraham to say, why do I need to give you a tenth of anything? I mean, you're a king. I got that. I just conquered a bunch of kings. What stopped me from conquering you? Huh? Uh, He could have said, you know, why do I need to be blessed by you as a priest? I mean, I've been blessed by God himself. Right? This teaches us something about Jesus. I mean, the point of this story, the reason the writer of Hebrews connects this story and sandwiches it in between all of these other things about Christ is it teaches us something about the nature of Jesus and who we are as God's people. Because we see here that although Melchizedek was a king, he is not the true king. Jesus is. Melchizedek is foreshadowing the true king. Abraham's posture toward Melchizedek is the posture that all Christians must take in the presence of their king. How often do we react in pride? How often do we fail to have a humble spirit before the Lord, because we react in pride. I mean, Abraham could have walked on Melchizedek and said, I'm a patriarch, God spoke to me, I conquered these kings, this is my stuff, let me pass. And that's what we do all the time, right? Think about it. Think about if I were to say, hey man, uh, I need you guys to, um, nobody likes it when a preacher talks about money, but what if I were to say, hey look, we could use a little money right now. What's your first reaction? (laughs) You asking for my money? This is my money. I got this money, right? What if I were to say, hey, we need a little bit of, uh, we need some volunteers to help with something. We've got, we got some kids that need some help over there. I mean, we're about to acquire a permanent building. We might need some people with some elbow grease to go down and scrub the floors and stuff. Say, look, you think I got time for that? It's my time. Huh? I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying an example that I'm, I can relate to in my field of work. But it happens in your field of work as well, right? 
I mean, how often when you're when you go on a job and you think, you know, you, you get jealous because you're working hard and somebody that you work with gets the promotion that you think you deserve. You're like, well, wait, I'm working harder than that guy. How come he got the promotion? How come he got the bonus? I didn't get the bonus. I'm working just as hard. Right. Or in your neighborhood or the time that you have, the resources that you have, the place that you live, all of these things we can often think are things that we acquire in our own strength and our own doing, and therefore we react in pride. But see, Abraham teaches us something here. We see that this is showing us the posture that God's people are to have before a king. Abraham approaches Melchizedek humbly. He submits to Melchizedek's Authority. He recognizes that Melchizedek is God's king of righteousness, that he is God's king of peace. Scripture in verse 3 says that, that he, resembles, he is, uh, resembles the son of God. So Abraham approaching Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. He was a king, he was a priest. He approaches with the posture that we are to have before our God. See, the writer of Hebrews ties in this story for the first century church to understand the supremacy of Christ as the true king. It's not the Roman Empire that's the true king. It's not your political preference that's the true king. It's not our nationality or ethnic heritage or our tradition that is our king. It is not our money. It is not yourself, your preferences, your intellect, your possessions, your place. None of these things are to rule over us, but how often do they? Right? To pry into your heart to see what your king is. Look at what dominates your time and your money. Open your calendar and your checkbook. If you want to know who is ruling over you, that will show you. And so the posture of Abraham before Melchizedek shows us the posture we ought to have before the Lord. Walking up saying, I recognize that the conquering of the kings is not my doing. That was God's gift to me. The possessions I take from those conquered kings, those aren't my things. That's a gift from God to me. So I'm going to give a portion back, right? We have a great deal we could learn from this. So tomorrow when you go to work and you're out there uh, conquering the business world or conquering the medical community, bear in mind that that's God's blessing, God's gift to you. That paycheck you get in the mail is God's gift to you. It's God's money. He's given it to you. Right? That, that relationship you have, if you were dating somebody, that's not somebody you were using for your own pleasure and benefit. That's a gift to you. Steward her well, gentlemen. Love her well. Right? The children that you have is God's gift to you. So I'll ask you what rules you and what prompts your motivations. Because we learn here from this passage that just as Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness and that he is king of peace, that he is a king that that is resembling the son of God, that he is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And just as Abraham approaches this king of righteousness and king of peace and all humility and submission and saying, I recognize God has you in this place and me in this place. I mean, scripture says that the that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham did all the conquering, not Melchizedek. But Abraham says, these possessions belong to you. I am being blessed by you. I am submitting humbly to your authority as the true king in this scenario. And you and I see Jesus as our true and better king. He reigns. All belongs to him. 
we need to repent and believe that. Secondly, we see not only that Melchizedek is a king, but Jesus is our true king. Secondly, we see that although Melchizedek is a priest, Jesus is our true priest. Now look at this. It says, for Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. All right, so Melchizedek is not only a king, he is a priest. Just so you know, in biblical literature and in biblical tradition, it was not commonplace for a king to also be a priest. Nor was it commonplace for a priest to get to be the king. Those were two separate offices. It's not like somebody, you know, it's not like uh, somebody's in modern day would say, "Look, I'm going to be the president of the world and also the pope." Right? You can't you can't serve in both offices, right? Or you can't uh, you know, it's it's just not heard of. But it's interesting that Melchizedek is both a king and also a priest. Take, I'll give you a guess. One guess. You'll all get it right. Who is the other person in biblical history that was both a king and a priest? Jesus. You guys got an A. I'm calling the bus. Let's go to heaven. We're done. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. There's lots more to do. Right, so Jesus is our true king. He's also our true priest. You see, the book of Hebrews says Melchizedek is priest of the Most High God. And down in verse 3 it says, He is without a father, a mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I mean, if you were just to take that sentence and not know that it was about Melchizedek, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Continuing as a priest forever. It goes on to say he's a great man with who Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And verse 7 says it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So you see that it was a role of a priest both in the Old Testament and into the first century where the Christian church and the book of Hebrews was written to, that it was a role of a priest to mediate the relationship between God and man. It was the role of a priest to, to kind of say, look, we're gonna, uh, we need to get, do some work over here. I'm going to make some sacrifices and to pray on the behalf of God's people before the Lord. I'm going to meet with the Lord on behalf of God's people. It, it was the role of a priest to be the mediator of that covenant relationship between God's people and God himself. And you see what happens here is though as Abraham has been called out by God, he's been blessed by God, he has been told that he will be uh, the recipient of God's promised blessing and that through him the whole earth will be blessed. But Abraham knows that that is not meaning that he is going to be a king and a ruler, but rather he is humbly submitting to the leader that God has before him. Likewise, he's recognizing, although God has spoken to him directly, that there is someone else who is the true mediator between his relationship with God. I mean, do you see that? I'm confused because I look at this, you know, when I read the passage in Genesis 14, you should do that. It's like, wow, you know, why couldn't Abraham say, hey, Melchizedek, I know you're a priest of the Most High God, but God spoke to me directly. I mean, I'm the one who's going to be the heir of the promises. I'm the one that God is blessing. I'm the one that God said through, all, through me all the nations of the earth should be blessed, right? You and I would probably think that way. So, but God told me this. Why do I need to give anything to this priest? Why do I need to be blessed by this priest? Here's why. Just as Melchizedek was a type of king that points us to the true king Jesus, he's also a type of priest that points us to our true priest Jesus, because Jesus is our mediator in a relationship between God and man. Jesus is the true priest, the true one who makes it possible for us to even relate to God. 
he sees Abraham has a humble posture submitting to the priest, recognizing that he needs someone to mediate his relationship with God. You and I need to come to grips that we need someone to mediate our relationship with God. We're Americans. We're self-sufficient. We rarely think we need help with anything. Just like I say, hey, you know, who, why would I want to submit to a king? I mean, that's my money. This is my land. This is my house. In the same way, if I say, hey, you need somebody to help mediate your relationship with God, you're probably thinking, dude, what are you talking about? I pray on my own. Right? I read on my own. I don't need to be in a church. I can do my own spiritual thing. Friends, do you know if your spiritual thing has no Jesus in it, it's a lame spiritual thing. It may be cool. You might have some cool candles and cool music, man. You may be able to do downstretching dog. I got it. But if there's no Jesus in it, no matter how good it is, no matter how cool it is, it's lacking an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Period. I mean, Abraham shows us, as he talks with Melchizedek, that very thing. He could have said, Look at all I've done. I've conquered kings for the Lord. I've gathered wealth for the Lord. I rescued people who were in bondage for the Lord. That's what he did. Abraham did that. He could have said, I've got this. But rather he says, no. I recognize that in all my triumphs, I'm still a flawed man. If you know the story of Abraham, he lies about his wife, says it's his sister. He says, you know, I'm tired of waiting to have a kid, so I'm going to knock up this other girl instead of my wife. Abraham did a bunch of foolish stuff, no different than you and I. But at the end of the day, Abraham's faith was such that he recognizes on his own he is not a self-sufficient, uh, intimate person with God. He needs a mediator. He needs somebody to draw him in. All of his accomplishments, all of his conquests, all of his spoils of war, all of his uh, spiritual strength was not good enough. He needed somebody to draw him in and be a priest for him. Melchizedek shows us what Jesus does for us. You with me? Melchizedek's a hard... I was so tired of writing Melchizedek in my notes, I just started writing a big M. So if you look at my notes, it's just like M. You know, I'm just like, it's kind of a hard word to say. Now, next year, all the new babies being born, if it's a son, name him Melchizedek. It'd be awesome. See, it's an example of faith. Abraham's submission to Melchizedek points us to Jesus being our true priest. Right. And this is good news for us. So, as I asked you before, to pry into your heart to see what it is that rules and reigns over you. Is it your pride? Is it your guilt? Is it your fear? Is it some sort of sin? Is it some sort of good thing? Like, hey, I'm a hardworking man. That's good. If you do that apart from God's reign in your life, it's reckless and foolish. Likewise, how do you relate to God? Is it your good moral capacity? Is it your good intellectual fortitude? Is it the fact that you think you, you're very generous in giving? Those are all very, very good things. Obey the Lord in doing those things. But if you do those things apart from a reliance on Jesus... Your spirituality is just empty. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. Abraham shows us that even in all of his good things, he needed a mediator. And for him, that mediator was Melchizedek, 
priest of the Most High God. For you and I, that true and better priest is Jesus and Jesus alone. So reflect on that. Think about how you relate to God. Thirdly, I want, you, want, us, want us all to see this, is that Melchizedek was a king, pointed us to the true and better king, Jesus. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, pointed us to the true and better priest, Jesus. But Melchizedek also, his name means king of righteousness, and he's pointing us to our true and better righteousness, Jesus. You see, verse 2 even says that his name means uh, king of righteousness. Now, you and I today have kind of a skewed view of righteousness. I mean, we often think that righteousness means, you know, external things only. Like we're big into behavior modification, right? I mean, this happens in non-religious circles. It happens in religious circles. It happens in churches. It's happened in this church. It's happened in my life personally where we think if we want to be righteous people, we have to do X, Y, and Z. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't say you must do X, Y, and Z in order to be right with God. But rather it says you cannot be right with God. But Jesus, your true king and true priest, has done X, Y, and Z. Therefore you are right with God. And this is what life should look like. You see, like I said, Abraham could have said, hey, I'm blessed by God. God spoke to me directly. I'm the recipient of God's promise. I've done these great conquests. I must be righteous. But as we've seen, he faltered in his faith from time to time. But in coming before Melchizedek, he trusts that this king of righteousness is going to be a king and priest to him to draw him closer to the God that has called him, to the God that he is seeking to serve. What Abraham did, he did good stuff, but he also needed to be drawn closer to the Lord. For you and I, Jesus is our true righteousness. You see, Jesus was perfect where we're imperfect. And when we sin, Jesus never sinned. Where we're foolish, Jesus is always wise. When we're selfish, Jesus is always giving and gracious. When we walk away from God, Jesus is close with God, his Father, and he draws us close to him. And that's such good news. It takes the weight off of us a little bit. Therefore, fear and guilt and pride does not rule over you anymore. Fear and guilt and pride does not determine the the avenues you try to work hard and do better to get close to God because you say, look, I can't ever work hard enough. I can't do better enough. I can't try harder enough. I'll never be moral enough or smart enough. You can rest in knowing that Jesus has done all of that on your behalf. And he says, I got this. So you just come to me. I got this. And that's the best and most freeing news in the world. (laughs) But as an example of faith, Abraham's submission to Melchizedek points us to Jesus as our true righteousness. Not our works, not our accomplishments, not our intellect, our moral anything. We can only be right with God and right with each other because of Jesus' intervention. Period. If that's all you hear today, hear that. If you guys all got up and walked out right now, I'd cry, but I'd get over it because that's all I want you to hear. I want you to hear that. That's the most important news. Jesus is your true righteousness. And the Bible just talks all about this right and left. This is what I love. Listen to what 
Uh, John writes in 1 John 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, anyone ever sinned? Mm -hmm. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, that's pretty good news, don't you think? If you sin, you got somebody going to bat for you with God the Father, and his name is Jesus. You don't have to show up before God with your resume. You can say, hey, look, man, Jesus, Jesus went to bat for me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 to a super dysfunctional church in the first century, Corinth. They had all kind of fun things going on, like demonic worship and like prostitutes. It was wild. Kids, sorry about that. Talk to your parents. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes this, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's right, we we can't brag on our accomplishments. We brag on Jesus' accomplishments. We can't brag on our intellect. We brag on the wisdom of Christ. We can't brag on our moral fortitude and track track record. We brag on Jesus' awesome redemption of us. That's what we're to do. See, us today, what are some ways that false righteousness can emerge in your life, right? Think about what you take great pride in, and it can be a good thing. Usually it is a good thing. Nobody in here probably brags about their, you know, rap sheet, right, from prison. Like, hey, look, check this out. Right? You probably brag about uh, your good accomplishments, which is good. You say, look, man, I'm doing really well at work. I've opened five businesses, right? I mean, my, I went from rags to riches, dude. Um, it could be some good stuff like that. You know, I own five houses on six continents. How's that possible? Don't know. There's a lot we can brag about, and some of it is really good stuff, but in the end, it takes our eyes off of Jesus and puts our eyes on ourselves and makes us think that we're right with God and right with each other because of our outward performance, and this is a bad thing. It emerges in so many subtle subtle religious ways. Here's a couple examples. My goal in the next 30 seconds is to rub everybody the wrong way so that you look to Jesus. So here we go. Here's some false righteousness we see in religious circles. Hmm, here we go. I'll just go out, come out swinging with this one. Schooling choice for your children. Huh? Some think it's more righteous to homeschool. Some think it's more righteous to private school. Hmm? Is that, is that anybody there? Some think it's more righteous uh, to live in one part of town than the other. Right? Some people think it's righteous to live in the city and that if you're in the suburbs, you're a sellout. I've never heard that one before. Some people think uh, that some types of ministry giftings are more righteous than others. Some people think that extroverts are more righteous than introverts. I don't know why. God made introverts too. Right? Some people think that um, style, maybe of, of worship or discipleship or spiritual uh, uh, dis- disciplines, may be more righteous. For some of you, God uses very structured catechisms and stuff. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful God uses that in so much as it points you to Jesus. If, that, if, if you use that to become a self-righteous person, I'm very sad for you. But I know some solid, solid 
intimate with Jesus' people that use structure and catechisms and they pick apart Greek and Latin texts from 800 years ago, praise the Lord. But if your style is a little looser, when you're like, you know, when I relate to Jesus, I go for a jog in the woods and I just kind of pray out loud, just kind of off the top of my head. Man, praise God. Praise God. If you get in your car on the way home and you're singing operatic cantatas to the glory of God, praise God. If you bust out some metal or hip hop, mm, I'm with you. But also I have a degree in classical music, so I appreciate both. Just saying. See, self-righteousness emerges in so many ways, and it's divisive amongst the church. It's why 1 Corinthians was written. People say, well, so-and-so is gifted like this. That guy's gifted differently, so this guy must be more righteous. You know what? I'm probably the most unrighteous person on the face of the earth, except Jesus saved me. Right? When you look at me, I hope you see Jesus. I hope you say, that guy should not even open his mouth. You, you, should, you should have seen that guy back in high school and college. You should have seen that guy. You should, you should see what that guy used to, the words that used to come out of his mouth, filthy. I was in a band called Foul Mouth, for goodness sakes. But the good news is that I'm not righteous at all. But Jesus is. And he says, you belong to me. I'm going to be righteous on your behalf. I mean, you can't hit the ball far at all. I mean, you, can, you can't even get it off the tee, buddy. But Jesus comes up and says, let me knock it out of the park. And here, grab my hand, and we're going to round these bases. That's what Jesus does, baseball analogy. You're welcome. So what struggles with righteousness do you have? Because they're out there. They're out there. But Jesus is our true and better righteousness. He is our only righteousness. You are not righteous because of your school choice, because of your money, because of your job, because of what neighborhood you live in, because of what style of worship you prefer, not because of the style of evangelism or discipleship you may use. If God uses it to grow you and further his kingdom, praise God. But if it is used to puff you up and make you prideful and divisive, you need to repent and throw it out. That so many people come up to me and say, well, I'm righteous. Let me blow your church to pieces. There you go. That honors the Lord. I am not justified by my sarcasm. I repent of my loose lips. This is why the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 13. We'll get to this in a couple weeks. It says, remember your leaders. This is my life verse right here. If you were a disgruntled, untucked shirt Christian, this verse is for you. Here you go. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. My favorite verse in Hebrews. No, one of them. You hear what this writer says? He says, those who, those who spoke the word of God. Those who spoke the word of God, look at the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Don't imitate their style. Don't imitate their culture. Don't imitate their preferences of anything. Don't imitate their preferences of where they live. Don't imitate their preferences of how they dress. Don't imitate the preferences of what they read that helps them grow if it doesn't help you. Don't imitate their style of of music necessarily or their culture. Imitate their faith. Faith. I can't wait to preach that sermon in a couple weeks. We'll get there. 
What I want you to take away is Jesus is our true and better king. He rules, he reigns, not us. Melchizedek was a type of king to point us to Jesus, and Abraham was a type of man who could be seemingly good and righteous, but at the end of the day submits to the king who really rules over him. Jesus is our true and better priest. He's the mediator between God and man. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, uh, bridging the gap between Abraham and God to point us to being bridged by Jesus to God. Jesus is our true and better righteousness, That way we look to him to be in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. The second we take our eyes off of God and look at ourselves, we're not in right relationship with God anymore. The second we take our eyes off of Jesus and look to other people, we're not in relationship with other people as well anymore. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus altogether, and that's where we go. Thirdly and finally, I'll wrap this up quickly, Jesus is our true and better peace. Melchizedek was... He was a king, he was a priest, he was king of, uh, his name means king of righteousness, but it says he was king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Salem means peace, shalom, right? King of peace. And you and I often confuse peace and comfort. We think peace is an absence of noise, an absence of people, an absence of of, uh, maybe financial struggle or hardship or a a relational tension. Peace just means uh, everything is comfortable, And that's not a biblical definition of peace. Because what happens is we think we rule our lives, we think we're doing right by God and doing right by other people, and we pursue comfort. And that's not right at all. We don't need comfort, we need peace. Imagine being Abraham. He just came from battle. He just rescued some, uh, some of his kinsmen, not, not only Lot, but all these other people that were with him. And he like, goes in with 318 soldiers, and they go hacking and chopping. And they were probably a bloody mess, tired, scraped knees. Their backs hurt from carrying the bags of gold and all the stuff that they, they took. Right? He probably wanted just to pitch his tent and take a nap next to a stream. That's comfortable. But it's not peace. Abraham needed to be right with God and right with each other, with the other people with him. And so when he meets with Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek's name is King of Righteousness. He is also King of Salem, which means peace. There is a a, a visual for you and I to see that as we approach Jesus, our true king, as we approach Jesus, our true priest, as we approach Jesus, our true righteousness, there is great peace. There is no striving between us and God anymore. There's no striving between us and each other. It's because we're not thinking we're our own kings in our mind, battling and jockeying for position. It's because we know that we're not priests in our own right, trying to make ourselves right and clean before the Lord. We know that we cannot do anything to make ourselves righteous. When we do all of those things, when we think we're our own king, our own priest, and our own righteousness, we strive to exhaustion, we get angry, we get bitter, we get depressed, we want to give up and walk away from the faith. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus as our true king, our true priest, and true righteousness, we have true peace. We can walk in and say, I belong to this king, and he loves me. He's a better ruler than I'll ever be. He's a better mediator before the Lord than I will ever be. He is righteous and perfect more than I could ever hope to be. Jesus is our true peace. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with each other. And so you and I, 
As we look to comfort and peace and money and relationships, sometimes we look for comfort and peace with things that we know are wrong, like any kind of sin or vice that you have. You're like, I just think this will comfort me. In the end, it just rots your soul. We look for for peace and relationships and then self-sufficiency. We think, if I just had 10% more money in the bank, then I can chill. If I just had a bigger house, then I could chill. If I just had more time to myself, then I could chill. And at the end of the day, chilling is not peace. It may be comfort, but it's not peace. But when we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as a true king, true priest, true righteous one, we look to him as our true peace. Which is why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For he himself, I love it, for he himself is our peace. Peace is not something Jesus gives you. He is peace. Right? He, right relationship with God is when you're with Jesus. Jesus is not a Pez dispenser. He's just, I, Jesus, I want some peace. Just, get, just, just toss it over here because I don't even want to get any. Just toss it. Thank, thank you. I'm, I'm good. Got, thanks for the peace. Peace is right relationship with God through Jesus. Peace is a person. His name is Jesus the Christ, right? For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus himself said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So friends, in closing, I'll say this. Just kind of threw it all out there. Praying the Lord will let it sink into your heart and mind and soul. May it saturate you in all grace by God's Spirit. As we walk away, I want us to reflect on those things. Who is your king? Who is your priest? Where is your righteousness? And where is your peace? And friends, if any of those questions do not point to Jesus, I don't care how good it is, we need to repent. Repentance is a good thing. Repent means to turn away from something and to turn toward something else. I've repented like 18 times since I've been on the stage because I lose sight for a second. I start freaking out in fear or panic or guilt or whatever. We turn away from sin and bad things. We also turn away from the good things in which we find control and comfort. We turn away from those things and we look to Jesus, our true king, our true priest, our true righteousness, our true peace. So if you are a Christian, we need to do that constantly because we just lose sight constantly. And it's okay. We just keep looking to Jesus. We remind ourselves to look to Jesus, right? If you're not a Christian, I want you to consider where you look for peace, comfort, and control. All of those things. Consider that. And I want you to know that even those great, great, great things that are going on, I'm so happy for you. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And I want you to know that. And this will change everything about our lives personally, our marriages, our families, this church community, this city, and ultimately the world with the good news of Jesus. That's what I want you to know. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you that you have mercy on sinners like me. 
on fickle, angry punk rockers like me. God, I thank you that you were gracious and kind to your people. God, I thank you that you were not angry at us, but you were kind and loving and gentle and so patient. God, I pray that you would keep us always humble before you as Abraham had a posture of humility before Melchizedek. So too, Lord, I pray that we would have a posture of humility before you, that we would not see ourselves as rulers or priests or righteous ones, that we can't boast on our track record, nor should we be shameful or guilty by it, but rather we can be humbly secure and resting in who you are as our true peace. God, I pray that you would make that very real and evident in every life in this room. God, I pray that you would Give us that understanding in our minds that you would give us that in our hearts. God, I want that. I need that. Jesus, I forget. I so often forget that you were the king, that you were the priest, that you were the righteousness that I need, that you were my peace. God, I forget. And Lord, I repent. I repent. I want to believe better. Make me believe better. God, I pray that for my friends in this room as well. God, that you would make it just very real and evident in our lives, that there would be much joy, much joy because of this good news, and that, God, from this community, you would ripple out the good news of Jesus to the nations. God, that it would start in our our families and our homes, and that it would ripple out through schools and neighborhoods and through this city to the state of Georgia and South Carolina, the Southeast, to the whole nation, out to the world. God, I pray you just do amazing things. And God, that you would give us glimpses of those amazing things for your glory and our joy and for the advancement of the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.